everyone welcome to antibodies this is our 40th body sode a segment where we discuss research papers with first or last authors of the article joining me today is eugenio from the autonomous university of mexico how are you doing doing eugenio i'm doing very very good and very excited for today uh discussion yeah we the article we are discussing today is titled cd8 positive t cell activation in cancer comprises an initial activation phase in lymph nodes followed by effector differentiation within the tumor this paper is coming from the group of Hayden Kissick at Emory University the first author in this paper is Natalia Proknevska and she is joining us today to discuss the article welcome to the podcast natalia thank you for having me and inviting me to discuss uh, my phd thesis work so i'm really excited to talk to you guys today we are excited and there's a lot of work that we will go through but before that eugenio can you tell our audience something about our guest today of course well natalia it's a talented young scientist with a background in biochemistry and immunology She completed her bachelor's degree in biochemistry at Georgia Tech before pursuing a PhD in immunology at Emory University, where she conducted research in tumor immunology, particularly in CD8 T cells and APS cells. And Natalia, welcome welcome to our podcast. During your PhD and now um, in your uh, next step, your research has focused mainly on CD8 T cells. What is the thing with these cells that caught your attention? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So I got really interested in immunology and CD8 T cells in college, actually studying in a cancer biology class where we talked a lot about immunotherapy and some of the immune cells. And I just thought it was so interesting that you have these CD8 T cells that are the killers of the immune system and that now a lot of the therapeutics are focusing on kind of reinvigorating them and using your own immune system against cancer. So that's really why I got into the field. And then obviously I did my PhD in a very tumor immunology setting. Um, And now I consider myself just a general basic immunologist, but I think CD8 T cells are like the coolest cell of the immune system in a way, because they're the ones that actually kill the infected cells or the cancerous cells. They're the ones that you really need during Um, the immune responses that I've studied so far. But I also think throughout my PhD, I've gotten more and more interested in other immune cell types, especially antigen-presenting cells or APCs, because they really direct CD8 T cells. So I think at this point, I really think of CD8 T cells as soldiers of the immune system, and they need the direction from the other immune cells, such as APCs. So I really like that connection between Um, the innate immune system that's kind of picking up the antigen and the signals and how that's translated to the actual CD8 T cell response. So I am a very heavy CD8 T cell immunologist, but I think I'm actually getting away from CD8 T cells as time goes on. That's really interesting. And I'm glad you're talking about your favorite immune cells because (laughs) we did in our social media some trivia I would like to get into. Tell us what we did about this. Yeah, uh, last week, 
or maybe it was two weeks ago, we posted a trivia question. So there are two things here, right? First one is the trivia question that we posted on Twitter. And well, our hosts rated this as a difficulty level two out of three, where three is the most difficult <laughs> question. But yeah, this is a level level two question. Which dendritic cell type is not a hematopoietic cell? And the right, right answer to this was follicular dendritic cell. So yay to whoever got this right. What we had one of the followers who commented on it. So I would like to acknowledge Amrita Mishra for getting this correct. And that's our trivia. We will be posting more trivia questions, I think once every month and everybody can participate in that. They're just for fun. Now what's not for fun and what's really serious is our quest to find the most hated immune cell as has been a long awaited question in the immunology community. Uh, we found out, uh, I think two weeks back, that one of our hosts, Ash, she hates B cells. And that's when Natalie f came forward saying that she hates eosinophils. So I think that warranted us to look at what is the universally most hated immune cell. And before I say it out loud and reveal the poll answers, Natalia, I want to know which, which immune cell do you hate the most? Which cell does get on your nerves? Oh, and this is a safe space for you to talk yeah, about it. <laughs> that's that's a good. That's a good question. That's really hard. Um, I'm gonna say I ignore B cells a lot, but I don't think I hate them. I just ignore them. And mm -hmm. the immune cell that I guess I get very annoyed about are I think neutrophils. I think neutrophils are really annoying. They're annoying to work with. And in cancer, people say all sorts of stupid things about NPCs <laughs> and neutrophils. So I think that really, I just really hate it. But I have really good friends that work on neutrophils. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I really hate neutrophils. Okay, Natalia, I, I don't know. Did you vote in this poll? Because that is the most hated immune cell. <laughs> no, I didn't. I think it's the oh. general immunology thing. I, I, it's to hate. Yep. Yeah united by our hatred for neutrophils. So this is, yeah, we, we got a 40% response out of the four, or four options were B cells, T cells, neutrophils, and conventional dendritic cells. And neutrophils got a 40% response. So yeah, heads off to neutrophils for uniting the community. We, we have decided we're gonna make it a tournament because it's not fair for other immune cells to be left out of this. So we'll eventually add more polls and we'll make it a grand tournament. And one day we will have the question, <laughs> this question answered that has plagued immunologists Def since centuries. I, yeah, right? I think granulocytes <laughs> in general, I mean, I have allergies, but I should say eosinophils too. Oh, so you have a personal vendetta with those <laughs> yeah. guys. <laughs> All right. So that was our poll. And now it's time to get into the paper. But before that, Eugenio, are there any terminologies or concepts that we want to go through before getting into the nitty gritty of the paper? Sure. So there are two concepts that we need to discuss before uh, diving into the paper and I hope Natalia could help me with this. So uh, we, we read a lot during the paper, what is tumor draining lymph nodes? What, what are those uh, tumor draining lymph nodes? Yeah, so tumor draining lymph nodes in the context of, of my work, at least, is basically the lymph node that is close to the tumor where the immune cells are gonna naturally drain to. So in a way, it's basically the lymph node near the tumor where all the immune cells are gonna come from the tumor and then the ones from the tumor 
draining lymph node are going to go back into the tumor, hopefully. And for most of this paper, I look at non-metastatic tumor-draining lymph nodes, meaning there's no cancer within the lymph node, um, and it's completely benign. So it's just a lymph node that has, hopefully, the immune response going to the tumor that it's nearby. And, I'll, you know, lymphatic drainage and blood and every everything in circulation is going to drain there. And this, thank you, Daniel. And the second point would be uh, T cell exhaustion uh, and stemness in T cells, at least. So that is a, is a very broad, broad um, field. And I don't, T cell exhaustion generally, what we mean by that is during chronic antigen stimulation. So, for instance, chronic viral infection. So in mice, often people use chronic LCMV. In humans, you, you know, that's HCV, HIV, or tumors, which is also like a chronic antigen setting. CD8 T cells lose some of their functions as they're exposed to this like chronic antigen. So they lose their abilities to produce as many cytokines and to proliferate and so on and so forth. And really, T-cell exhaustion has been around for many decades now, but I think right now we're getting into this field of separating it into, you know, having a stem-like CD8 T-cell and then this terminally differentiated, more effective CD8 T-cell. So I think we're going to talk through that as we talk through our paper. But basically, just because this I worked on tumors, uh, which is a chronic antigen setting, a lot of this is in the field of T-cell exhaustion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Natalia. And we're going to hear a lot of this. So I think, Jarin, we can start with the introduction. Let's go. So if you have listened to any of our previous episodes on cancer immunology, one thing, what common theme you might have noticed is our focus on T-cells in recognizing and eradicating cancerous cells. To be specific, the cytotoxic T-cells form a crucial part of the adaptive immune response. We can even predict patient survival and response to checkpoint therapy by looking at the cytotoxic T-cell infiltration into the tumor. What I just said also implies that there are certain cases where the cytotoxic T-cells do not infiltrate the tumors. Understanding why T-cells infiltrate the tumors in some cases and not in others can help us better develop immunotherapeutics. Let's look at our current understanding of the T-cell activation process. As we have learned in the past in our episode 17 of the Immunology 101 series, for T-cells to be activated in the secondary lymphoid organs, such as the lymph nodes, there are three signals required. The first one is the TCR stimulation, the second one is a co-stimulatory signal, and a third one is an activating cytokine. After the activation, T-cells can go through multiple rounds of proliferation and are ready to go into tissues and be ready to do their job. In case of a tumor, the activated T-cells are going to infiltrate the tumor. The problem is that this generalized model of T-cell activation doesn't apply for every T-cell. One particular type of T-cell that the authors of this paper focus on is the non-cytotoxic CD8-positive T-cell that expresses this transcription factor called TCF1. Natalia, can you tell our audience what's the relevance of the CD8-positive, TCF1-positive T-cell in cancer, and how does this cell type behave differently 
compared to a typical activated T cell? Yeah, definitely. So as I was saying, these uh, some stem-like CDT cells, some people also call them precursor exhausted TPECs, you know, multitudes of names now, but basically it's what you said. It is an activated CD8 T cell in a chronic antigen setting, such as a tumor that is maintaining TCF1. And these are extremely important because these are the cells that are stem-like. They can proliferate, they can give rise to the terminally differentiated cells, which are the more cytotoxic and effector CD8 T cells that we want to kill the cancer. Um, and they can give rise to themselves, right? So it's a stem-like cell, it can self-renew. And these are really, really crucial because if you don't have this stem-like CD8 T cell in your tumor, for instance, the overall CD8 T cell infiltration is going to be very, very low because now these cells can't give rise to these effectors and you basically have very few CD8 T cells in your tumor and as you just said, in human cancer, having higher CD8 T cell infiltration predicts better survival, better response to immunotherapy, and so on and so forth. So really, these stem-like CD8 T cells are extremely important to maintain the entire CD8 T cell response in chronic antigen settings, so virus or cancer. And they're really strange in a way that they are being activated they express all the T cell activation markers, but they're not really an effector. And we, I think the paradigm for CD8 T cells is if you read a textbook, they activate, they see their antigen, they get TCR costum cytokines, they become an effector, they kill some stuff. And then if it's an acute infection, they become a memory cell. But these cells are really breaking that paradigm completely. So hopefully in my work, I can describe how this is different from what we currently know about just kind of canonical CD8 T cell activation for just an acute viral infection. That is great. I, I think this, this question is very important and something that has never occurred to me, maybe because I'm not a tumor biologist, <laughs> or maybe it's something that has always eluded me. But yeah, this is a great question. And this brings me to the important question the authors want to address in this study. In context of cancer, how does the TCF1 positive, CD8 positive T cells arise? And how does their activation take place? With that, we can jump into the results section. The first figure uh, has this question, how are the T cells primed in cancer? Let's go to a previous study that the authors cite here, where over 100 patients the, that were, have activated CD8 T cells within the tumors, and these cells mainly consisted of the two types of population. The first one was a TCF1 positive stem-like cells, and there was a second population in these patients that was TAM3 positive CD39 positive terminally differentiated cells. They also noted that the TCF1 pop positive population expressed little to no granzyme B and high amounts of CD8, CD28, while the TIM3 positive population expressed high amounts of granzyme B and mostly low CD28. Before we go forward with this, Natalia, can you tell us what's the importance of granzyme B and CD28 for a T cell to do its job? Yeah, definitely. So we often look at granzyme B 
in these TIM3 positive cells because these are the ones that are going to be cytotoxic. So we use it as a marker of the differentiated effector-like cells. And obviously it's a cytotoxic molecule and you want your CD8 T cells to be expressing granzymes so that they can actually kill tumor. So we kind of use that just as a marker of an effector CD8 T cell because it's the most kind of typical granzyme B. And then CD28 is kind of an interesting um, marker on these cells, obviously very important co-stimulatory receptor. Um, we used it in our previous paper to also sort out these stem-like CD8 T cells in tumors. There's also been previous work from Rafi Ahmed's group who we collaborate closely with showing the importance of CD28 expression on um, human CD8 T cells for response to immunotherapy. So, and hopefully I'll also show why CD28 is, is very important later. So it's, it's just a very interesting marker for these stem-like CD8 T cells to maintain high amounts of CD28. And it ended up being extremely useful for us in terms of uh, sorting these cells out because it's extracellular. Right. So in the current study, the authors analyzed patient-matched tumor-draining lymph nodes from prostate and kidney tumors. They identified an activated T-cell population that was positive for PD-1 and negative for CD45RA, which is a naive T-cell marker in humans. This population in the tumor was very similar to stem-like TCF1-positive population they had identified in the tumors in their previous study. This begs the question, are these cells found in within the tumor and those cells that are found in the draining lymph nodes related? To answer this, they performed TCR sequencing on the activated T cells found in the draining lymph nodes and the stem-like cells and the terminally differentiated cells that they found within the tumors. Again, the TCR sequencing here makes sense because the samples from the tumors and the cellular samples from the draining lymph nodes are from matched patients. That means they are from respect their respective patients. What they observed was there were overlapping TCR sequences from the activated T cells in the tumor draining lymph nodes and those stem-like cells in the tumor, meaning that these two cells may be clonally related. Further analysis showed that those activated T cells in the training lymph nodes could be the, the precursors to the stem-like T cells in the tumor, which in turn could be the precursors to the terminally differentiated cells. From this point onwards, we will call that activated population in the tumor, the one that expressed TCF1 and CD8, we'll call them the lymph node stem or LN stem CD8 positive T cells. Not because I like that word at all, but because the authors decided on it, which leads me to my next question. Natalia, what's up with that name, Ellen Stem? It's not easy to say. I do not want to be the ones presenting papers on Ellen Stem cells because <laughs> it's very hard to say in a talk. I, honestly, I, I always call them lymph node stems, so I don't even think about them being called LN stems, and that both sound really bad now that I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> we didn't name these cells for many, many years, and we realized we had to name them something when we had to present this or then write the paper, uh, and it was 
right now, I think there's just everybody making a new subset of these stem-like CD8 T cells. And we really didn't want to contribute to that. So the name lymphoid stem to us denotes the function, which is a stem-like CD8 T cell, and also the location. Because so much of the human work that is published is on the tumors, uh, just because it's a little bit easier to get tumors than it is to get draining lymph nodes from humans. So we just kind of put together lymph node and stem. But yeah, it's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue. For a while, we were calling them activated undifferentiated cells, which is even worse. So at least we moved on from that. Natalia, did you ever think about naming them Natalia T-cells? Like, they could be your thing. <laughs> that that would have been fun. I, I probably did think of that and got shut down. But, but no, I, I, I like it on paper, you know? Like, it looks good on paper. But yeah, I just call them lymph node stems. And, or we honestly just call, yeah, call them lymph node stems and tumor stems. And in our lab, we know what we're talking about. And I hope everyone else just forgives us for, for our naming. Yeah, like old and older days, scientists used to name structures and granules on their names, <laughs> like Islet of Langerhans and all that stuff. We need yeah. to get that yeah. back. We want to immortalize scientist name and make it harder for people to understand what the things do. Yeah, I should have called them like NP stems. See, that's yeah. You could you could do that very subtle, and then nobody knows what. <laughs> or yeah, you make up what it means. Yeah, it's like oh yeah, they're lymph node where the N L N and N stands for Natalia. <laughs> oh yeah, that's pretty good though. Like, yeah. Anyway, so coming back to the to the paper, the authors were able to show that these lymph node stem CD8 positive T cells can be activated in vitro. And they do proliferate, similar to the stem-like cells we found in the tumors. The authors also looked at transcriptomic and epigenetic profiles of the LN stem and stem-like cells, and they reached the same conclusion. These cells are very similar. So to summarize this section, we have learned that there are two major populations of activated CD8 positive T cells in the tumor, that is the stem-like and the differenti terminally differentiated T cells. This stem-like T-cell looks similar to the lymph node stem T-cells found in the tumor-draining lymph nodes, and the former cell type is probably derived from the latter. Now, now saying lymph node stem T-cells, it doesn't sound that bad, and actually, I agree why you named that, because it now, now you, can, you have it in mind. Yeah, this is not just any stem cell. This is a stem T-cell that is found in the draining lymph nodes. So I'll take everything back that I said before, Natalia. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next goal was to investigate the origin of the different CD8 positive T cell populations that they saw in the human draining uh, lymph node samples. Are these cells really related? And if they are, can we trace how they go back and forth between the tumor and the draining lymph nodes? The best way to do to answer this is to use a manipulatable mouse model. First, the authors would need to establish that the same populations that they identified in their human samples exist in the mouse models. To look into this, they used three murine cancer models. The first one was the STRAMP-C1 tumors derived from prostate cells that expressed an uh, LCMV glycoprotein. Then second, they used a B16 glycoprotein tumors derived from melanoma cells 
entered R E N C A H A. I'm guessing H A stands for hemagglutinin here. Yeah. Renka H A. Yeah. All right. So Renka H A tumors derived from kidney cells. And in all three models, the authors found antigen-specific CD8 T-cells in both the tumors and the tumor-training lymph nodes. Within the tumor, they found both terminally differentiated and stem-like CD8-positive T-cells. The terminally differentiated CD8 T-cells had higher expression of granzyme P, KI67, which is a marker for proliferating cells or dividing cells, and there was BLIMP1 expression while the stem-like CD8 T-cells had higher expression of CD127. In the draining lymph nodes, antigen-specific CD8 T-cells also had higher TCF1 and no expression of TIM3, and they, it also did not express any effector molecules. If you have noticed, this was similar to the populations that they saw in human samples. Natalia, can you help me understand why was it so important to show this across multiple mouse strains and tumor types? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. So uh, we are in the Department of Urology at Emory. So we get a lot of kidney and prostate uh, cancer samples, as you can tell from the first figure. And so I made this TRAMP-C1-GP tumor cell line uh, in the beginning of grad school, which is a prostate cancer cell line and where most of the work in this paper is, is really done. But when we first found these cells, we just wanted to make sure that it is actually universal, at least through several mouse models, because these TRAMP-C1 uh, GP tumors grow extremely slowly. So after you inoculate, I usually take down the mice maybe five or six weeks later. So we want to make sure it's not only happening in this one prostate cancer model, it's in male mice, it could be, you know, a very slow growing model. So B16 uh, GP is, of course, a melanoma, it's extremely fast growing, it's also in female black six mice. So we are really happy to see that it's a very similar phenotype in the B16. And then the rank AHA is kind of an additional control because now it's a bowel background, it's kidney cancer, which is also what we have uh, human samples from, and it's a completely different antigen as well. Um, and we also looked in not only GP33 specific cells in the TRAMP-C1s, we also looked at SPAS1, which is an endogenous actually TRAMP-C1 antigen. So we made sure that these lymph node stems existed in different specificities, different mouse models, you know, everything that we could think of. And I also think it's very important when you're working on any model, really, to make sure it's not just model specific or one, you know, cancer specific. And certain things are going to be only specific to a certain model. But I think human disease is so variable. In one cancer, you have such an incredibly fast response of the immune system. No one mouse model is ever going to model this very well. So we just tend to use different models in our lab to show, you know, you have PD-1 responsive, unresponsive, slow, fast, everything, because we really want to understand the immune system in, in different contexts. Yeah, and that was exhaustive work, like really exhaustive work. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I had some help. I mean, it's the B16GP uh, 
cell line that um, a postdoc in Rafi Ahmed's lab made. I made the Tramp C1, so we could kind of work like that. Another graduate student in my lab made the Renka HAs that many people work on. So um, it, it was a lot of work, of course, but we are very lucky to be kind of in an environment where we, we have the ability to make these cell lines and study them and have other people that also are studying them so we can always, you know, exchange and talk and do experiments together. Yeah, that's great. And it actually shows the power of collaboration, how you can get a lot of work done. And of course, those I think those tumor models can be used for future studies. And yeah, I always, set, I've always set my, yeah, I actually have sent my my tumor, my TRAMPC1 GPs all over the world, I think, at this point. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's. Um, it's been really great that people have responded this positively um, to it. They might not like working with all the male mice with a very slow growing tumor. Mm -hmm. It's it's a it's a really good model um, just because it gives you a long treatment time. If you want to look at that, it doesn't respond to PD-1. If you want to look at that, it's it's really uh, slow. So it matches the time points we think of for CD8 exhaustion. So there's a lot of benefits to it and obviously some limitations. Okay, I'm going to just not repeat this ever again, but did you ever think about naming that mouse on your name? <laughs> no. That could be an opportunity. Well, Jim Allison Jim Allison actually made the Tramps uh, cell line, so I really can't take credit for, for any of that. So, you so, just have uh, to like mess with some useless gene, and now it's a new model, and now you call it Natalia House or something. One <laughs> that, day, that, one that'd day. That would be very nice. But yeah, so I see you've had two opportunities in this whole paper so far where you could have been immortalized in the books of science. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> we, hopefully the paper, <laughs> hopefully just the paper as a whole <laughs> is enough. And yeah, more. yeah, I, I hope that that too. And <laughs> this is an amazing paper for sure. All right. So this makes, gets us to the next part. And I, I really love this part. So the authors then wanted to compare the phenotypes of the immune cells that respond to tumors. And they compare these cells to the immune cells that respond to viral infections. And I think this distinction was uh, really good to make that. So they transferred labeled antigen-specific T cells into mice with established tumors or into mice prior to infection with an LCMV strain that causes acute infection. During infection, the antigen-specific T cells responded quickly with a very typical effector cytokine profile. These cells also rapidly downregulated CD62L and TCF1. This all occurred prior to the cells dividing. However, in a tumor response, antigen-specific CD8 T-cells first underwent many rounds of division, upregulated some activation genes, but did not have reduced expression of CD62L, and they did not upregulate TIM3. The authors also demonstrate that exposure to tumor antigen is required for CD8 T-cell division and activation in the tumor-draining lymph nodes. Further, they showed that low antigen is not the reason for CD8 T-cells phenotype in the tumor-draining lymph nodes. Overall, these experiments were an elegant way to show that CD8 T-cells are not primarily uh, primed directly in the tumor and that the stem and effector cells aren't both activated in the tumor-draining lymph nodes. Natalia, will you briefly go through the model of phenotype accusation, uh, acquisition that is 
suggested by our data, like the stem cell phenotype acquisition upon initial activation and the lymph node, and then they migrate to the tumor, something like that? Yeah, so this, people actually didn't really like that I was comparing tumors to acute viral infections. So I'm really mm -hmm. happy that you enjoyed that. Um, mm -hmm. But the reason we are doing it is because this very early CD cell activation hasn't been studied in a really long time. And we wanted to use the acute LCMV model to just show a typical CD8 T cell response, what you would read about, you know, in, in Janeway or whatever textbook, um, compared to the tumor, which we had no idea what was going to happen. And it was absolutely fascinating when I first saw these data because these cells have undergone so many rounds of division and the CTVs diluting out beautifully. They upregulate CD44, they're mid for PD1, um, they upregulate chemokine receptors very highly, but there's so many things that they just are not turning off. So they're not turning off TCF1, they're keeping high expression of CD62L. So they really, it's just a very interesting phenotype to me that these cells are in fact activated, but are completely breaking what we think of typical CD8 T cell activation. And they are maintaining these stem-like genes, really. And they're activating already into the stem-like phenotype, which I don't think has been described very well before. So it's, it's just an extremely interesting T cell phenotype during activation. And I think it shows that the T cells are responding to the disease, right? So if it's mm -hmm. a viral infection, they're becoming an effector super fast, like everything's granzyme, everything's TIM3. It's insane. It really, it literally happens before division. And then if there's a tumor, there's different signals. And clearly that program just is not happening. And you know, it's it's super fascinating. And we go on to describe more of it, but I think there's a lot left to understand about that, you know, in the lymph node as well. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate how there are differential responses to viral immune, viral, viral infections and the tumors. And I see we are going a little bit more into that comparison later in this figure. So let mm -hmm. me dive into the next figure. The authors next wanted to understand how the tumor-specific CD8 T-cells differ from the viral-specific CD8 T-cells on transcriptional and epigenetic levels. They transferred antigen-specific T-cells in, into tumor-bearing and LCMV-infected mice, as they did in the previous experiment. They then sorted the activated but undivided antigen-specific CD8 T-cells from the tumor-draining lymph nodes of tumor-bearing mice and the spleen of LCMV-infected mice. Similar to what they found in their protein analysis uh, experiments, they found that the cells responding to a virus quickly upregulated a transcriptional signature associated with activation prior to cell division. The tumor-responding cells, however, had fewer transcriptional changes and transcripts of transcription factors associated with a stem program, such as TCF1 or BACH2 remained high. DNA methylation analysis of these populations further supported these results, as CD8 T cells in the LCMV uh, infected models response demonstrate epigenetic changes that are canonically associated with activation 
and the tumor-responding uh, cells underwent far fewer epigenetic changes, retaining their methylation status at most loci here. Um, Talia, is this something about the tumor antigen that you think it leads to different response? And how do the specific cytokines involved play a role in differentiating a tumor response to a viral response? Yeah, that is a great question and, and something that we have thought about for many years now. Um, the beauty of this model is these are TCR transgenic P14s that are specific for GP33, which is both in the TRAMP-C1 GP as well as in the LCMV infection. So at least the TCR isn't playing a role in this because they're the same TCR transgenics. Um, but I think the context in which the antigen is presented is extremely different in this setting, which is and kind of obvious, but I don't think we fully understand it yet. Because in cancer, you have this very localized, kind of slow growing tumor that's probably shedding, you know, dead cells, and you have some damps and pamps going, but it's really a local kind of inflammation. And so we're assuming from past work from Max Prummel and now many others that that antigen is getting transported into the lymph node by some sort of dendritic cell. And so I really like dendritic cells. So my thinking <laughs> is always that you have either different APCs or DCs. Um, they could be, they're most likely completely different. Um, in virus, they're probably getting infected. You're going to have so much type 1 interferon, so many inflammatory cytokines everything's going to be extremely activated from an innate immune response. But then in these tumor models and in tumors, I think you're, you're missing that. And, and the super, this extremely specific signals that are causing this to happen in the lymph node, we don't know. That's probably many years of future work, but I think you could be missing the CD4 help. You could be missing inflammatory cytokines that the APCs need to, you know, promote CD8 T cell effector differentiation, you're probably missing COSTIM and IL-12 and all sorts of things in these tumor-draining lymph nodes where you have so much in an acute viral infection. So we honestly didn't get into the signals that differentiate this early activation, um, but it's definitely something that I'm sure Hayden will look into. Um, and as we go through this paper, you'll see that we focus then mostly within the tumor. Right, and I'm guessing in a in case of a viral infection, you have better availability of PAMPs. And, yeah. Right, and they are very good at activating the innate, which then will lead to a quick adaptive response. Yeah, and and one note is that LCMV does infect the lymphoid tissue, and it is a very systemic, extremely inflammatory virus. Um, and that's what we are using because that's so much of the CD8 T cell biology is studied right. in LCMV, but, you know, there could be said, something said to a local viral infection could be a little bit of a different response as well. And that would be also an interesting comparison. Um, it's just harder to find those models to use. Yeah. And with that, now we can talk a little bit about the kinetics of the antigen-specific CD8 T-cell phenotypes, as they were the next subject of interest to the authors. 
expectedly adoptedly transferred antigen specific CDA T cells were found in the tumor draining lymph nodes throughout the time course and up to five weeks post transfer. These T cells were first observed in, in the tumor four days post transfer and at day four, they all had a stem-like phenotype. It was between days five to 10 that antigen-specific cells first differentiated into terminally differentiated phenotype and they gradually increased over time. Given this kinetic pattern, the authors performed an experiment to test if the stem-like cells were really stem-like, as in if they could regenerate their own populations. They transferred antigen-specific CDA T cells into tumor-bearing mice, then isolated those cells from the tumor-draining lymph nodes days later, before transferring these cells into a second tumor-bearing mice. The antigen-specific T cells, in fact, did populate the tumor and the tumor-draining lymph nodes of the second mouse, and the phenotypes were similar to what can be found during the first adoptive transfer. The authors also analyzed the transcriptional and epigenetic features of the antigen-specific cells in the tumor, and they compared it to tumor-draining lymph nodes. What they found was that following infiltration into the tumor, stem-like cells began to acquire an epigenetic signature associated with an upregulation of effector functions, such as demethylation of the loci that encodes for granzyme B and interferon gamma. With this data, the authors conclude that tumor-specific CDA T cells are stem-like when they reach the tumor, but acquire effector function when they are within the tumor. And with that, I will let Eugenio walk us through the next parts of the study. Thank you, Jeremy. So by comparing the phenotype of CDA cells in tumor-draining lymph nodes to the CDA T cells in the tumor, the key observation was that CDA T cells acquire factor function only once they get to the tumor. So clearly, something within the tumor drives this change. The authors hypothesized that this could be the antigen present in cells within the tumor. To test this hypothesis, the authors performed single-cell RNA-seq of APS isolated from naive lymph nodes, tumor-draining lymph nodes, or TRAMC1 tumors. Based on the expression of non-lineage markers, they identified the following dendritic cell subsets classical dendritic cells 1, classical dendritic cells 2, monocyte-derived dendritic cells, migratory dendritic cells, and plasmicytoid dendritic cells. While they found all different dendritic cell subsets within the tumor-draining lymph node, in contrast within the tumor, it, it was classical dendritic cells 2 and monocyte-derived dendritic cells which were the predominant APS subsets. Next, they investigated functional difference in the expression of co-stimulatory molecules such as CD80 and CD86, which could contribute to driving stem cell-like CD80 cells to terminally differentiated effector CD8 cells. Dendritic cells within the tumor express higher levels of CD80 and CD86 as compared to dendritic cells in the tumor draining lymph node. So Natalia, uh, here you report not only difference in the kind of APS found at the tumor site compared to the draining lymph node, but also difference in the expression of a specific co-stimulatory molecules. This could explain why CDAT cells acquire a factor cell phenotype only once they got to the tumor. 
How important do you think is the dendritic cell subset specific expression of the costumulatory molecules? Or do you think we could probably benefit patients by inducing the expression of CD80, CD86 in the training in, in the dendritic cells? Yeah, that's it's a, a very interesting question and something that I have been thinking about also for a long time since I got this data. And I know I'm probably going to upset a lot of the DC people and the APC people, but I don't know if the actual lineage matters as long as the APC can functionally present antigen and is activated and has higher levels of postum, for instance, in this model. Because these cells have already been kind of pre-activated. They're already, they've already seen antigen in the tumor draining lymph node. So it seems like in the tumor, they just need a little bit of an additional hit of TCR or costim to keep differentiating to become an effector. And that is not to say that I do not care about the lineage of the APCs because I think it's absolutely incredibly fascinating. And I think there is a certain lineage that is most likely staying more tumor resident in order to mm -hmm. orchestrate T-cell response. But I don't know if it's only one lineage will be able to do this. I think there's different APC populations, and we don't truly understand everything about the APCs within tumors and how they're presenting antigen. So I don't know if it really, really matters that it's this one specific APC. And I know in tumors, a lot of time people talk about CDC1s, which are the most uh, able to cross-present, which is clearly very, very important. But for instance, in this tumor model, there's basically no CDC1s. So I think the other DECs or APCs have some functional capacity as well, and we shouldn't just ignore them because they're not a CDC1. And then to your question about patient benefits, I, I completely agree that um, a lot of the times now with immunotherapy, Everything is very, very CD8 T cell heavy and checkpoint blockade, which is incredible, but not everybody responds to checkpoint blockade. And I think part of that is because what we're learning now through my work and many others is these CD8 T cells, stem like cells, need additional positive signals too. Not only do you need to take away, you know, the PD1 and the CTA4 negative signals that they're receiving, but you also need to give them some positive signals that probably are coming from an APC for them to then differentiate and then really, you know, become an effector that can kill the cancer cell, which is the goal. Um, so I do think there's going to be in the future, most likely combination therapies with TLR agonists, or there's other methods to activate more APCs, maybe recruiting more APCs to the tumor um, will also be beneficial because um, maybe then some of those will be activated, migrate back to the lymph nodes. I think there's a lot of therapeutics in the innate um, realm that are probably getting you know, developed now and we'll see in the next few decades. So um, to test mechanistically whether uh, this expression of co-stimulatory molecules by tumor APS drives the factor function in CD8D cells within the tumor, the authors use an adaptive cell transfer model. They transfer P14 CD8 T cells into TRAMP-C1 tumor bearing mice. 
Five days post-transfer, they infected CPG, a TLR9 agonist, intratumorally to activate the APS present within the tumor. They found that CPG injection led to the increased numbers of effector CDA T cells as measured by TCF-negative granzyme B-positive GIM3-positive CDA T cells within the tumors, but had no effect on the CDA cells in the draining lymph node, which remained stem cell-like. Moreover, blocking costumatory molecules CD80 and CD86 during CPG treatment lead to a decrease in granzyme B-positive and TCF1 TIM3 TCF negative team 3 positive CAT cells. Interestingly, when the authors block IL-12 or type 1 interferons, this did not happen. Overall, this data indicates a site-specific role of costumatory molecules in driving CD8 effector cell differentiation. So it seems that uh, co-stimulation, but not cytokine production, is the key driving of CD8 T cell activation in the tumor. However, there's some trans-presentation of cytokines of cytokine such as IL-15 by dendritic cells in tissues. And this signal is, is known to be important to activate TDA T cells, at least in uh, viral infection models. Uh, do you think this is, cytokine is also important uh, during this process? And do you, have, do you found this uh, cytokine in your RNA-seq data? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and um, we we did look at a little bit of the cytokines, such as you know IL twelve and type one interferons, but there's many many others, and I think cytokines are definitely important in the tumor microenvironment. And I know uh, Menpol's lab has done really nice work showing that IL fifteen promotes survival of these cells. There's many years of work on. IL-21 being really important for the differentiation of stem-like cells in the chronic viral models and in some work in tumors as well. Um, so this could be one of those things that's a bit model-specific. We haven't looked at very many, and not unfortunately. When I did these single-cell experiments, it was many, many years ago, and the older 10x doesn't capture the cytokine expression as well. So it was really hard to tell just from the 10x um, the cytokine expression, as well as just, you know, like costin. So that's mm -hmm. why we, we confirmed a lot of it with flow cytometry, just to have the actual physical expression of, um, of these molecules. So I think there is definitely a role for cytokines in vivo, um, and it could just be this model. Um, I know the IL-15 can be presented by some monocyte-derived cells as well as some CDC ones. So it's it's definitely interesting, and I'm sure many people are looking into it. It just happened that Tim was uh, right there in, in this work, <laughs> so we focused on it for the most part. Yeah, I think that uh, when you're doing your PhD, when you find something, you just follow that you know, to create a story. This was a really perfect story, the co-stimulation. Yeah, exactly. So we didn't we didn't want to add too too many more <laughs> things to it. It was awesome. It worked too yeah. well. <laughs> we are moving on. Um, thank you, Natalia. So um, all of this data uh, so far was performed using um, mouse models, but the authors next wanted to investigate if this difference in the expression of co-stimulatory molecules by tumors APS could also explain the stem cell to affect our CD8 T cells within human tumors. So first, the authors phenotype dendritic cell subset in human kidney models using RNA-seq. 
They also corroborate the presence of dendritic cell subset in, in human samples of kidney and prostate tumors. In these tumors, the author found three main dendritic cell subsets, classical dendritic cells 1, classical dendritic cells 2, and monocyte-derived dendritic cells. Once again, the authors found that classical dendritic cells 2 and monocyte-derived dendritic cells were the predominant dendritic cell subset in both kidney and prostate tumors. Next, the author group uh, tumor sample with low CD8 infiltration and high CD8 T-cell infiltration. As a previous study from the group showed that CD8 T-cell infiltration directly correlates with uh, TDCD8 T-cells. The authors found a positive correlation between the expression of co-estimatory molecules in the dendritic cells with high CD8 T-cell infiltration. Moreover, the expression of co-estimatory molecules correlated with the expression of cytotoxic genes typically expressed by tumor-draining CD8 T-cells. Finally, to functionally demonstrate that classical dendritic cells 2 and monocyte dendritic cells drive CD8 T-cell differentiation, they sorted these dendritic cell subset and co-cultured them with patient-matched tumor stem cell-like CD8 T-cells. Not only could both these subsets induce proliferation of stem, of stem cell CD8 T-cells, but also induce expression of granzyme B and CD39, both markers of differentiation of CD8 T-cell subset. This data again shows that dendritic cell subset has a specific role in driving CD8 T-cell differentiation. Natalia, did you also compare how classical dendritic cells 1 affect CD8 T-cell differentiation, even though they don't seem to have any particular role in this process? And also the data of costimotory molecules was, you know, not as uh, enriched as classical dendritic cells 2. But yeah. if you perform these experiments in vitro, could you see something like this? Yeah, and I think um, it was it was actually a bit shocking to see that there are so few CDC1 in in some of these tumors because everybody in the field, I think, really puts a lot on you know CDC1 infiltration correlates with CD8 T cell infiltration. These are the DTs that are amazing and that can do everything. When I first started doing this, I was like, wow, there. are are very, very few of these cells in, in the mm -hmm. tumors that we have. That's that's really, really weird because I thought they were the ones that could do everything. And so that time led us to think that maybe there, there are other APC subsets that are maybe not the best at cross-presenting or maybe not professional AP lineage DCs, but could also actually have a function within the tissue and the tumor. Um, so... I do think that the CDC1s have a role. Um, their role to me, this is my hypothesis, and you know, based on many people's work, is that they need to migrate into the draining lymph node to activate these lymph node stems. Um, but within the tumor, I'm not sure what the role is. They could also be helping with the differentiation. We haven't looked at that specifically. The reason I didn't actually sort them and try to do the ex vivo work is because there's just so, so few of them. And so when we were getting these human tumors and we were doing these really hard sorts where we had to sort stem-like CD8 T cells from the tumor and 
the DC populations all from the same piece of tissue, there we would be getting just such few cells that it didn't make sense to even co-culture anything um, because, you know, I was getting like 30 CDC1s. Um, so I do think they probably are very capable of inducing this differentiation. It's just extremely difficult to do with the numbers in these patient samples specifically. And I just want to point out that CDC1 infiltration does correlate with CD8 T cell infiltration, but every DC subset correlated with CD8 T cell infiltration. So I think when you have a lot of the CDC1s and a lot of the monocyte DCs and a lot of immune cells, that's just more or less a productive immune response happening in this patient's tumor. And it's not necessarily specific to CDC1s, at least what I've seen in my data in kidney and prostate cancer. So it would be interesting to work out some of the roles of the CDC1s in this tissue, but it's basically physically impossible to sort enough to, to do something functional. So um, I'm guessing, do you think that uh, it's time dependent? Like at the beginning of the, the tumor development, you will have this first CDC1's enrichment in the tumor migrating to the dendritic lymph node. And after, afterwards that the tumor is uh, you know established, then the dendritic cells type two are enriched there. So it's something about the timing that... Uh, yeah, I could, think it is, <laughs> it's either the timing or the location, um, because okay. classically, a dendritic cell, once it receives some sort of, you know, damp or PAMP signal, part of the maturation program is upregulating CCR7 and then migrating mm -hmm. to the lymphoid tissue. So I don't know if it's just the innate role of DCs is to leave tissue, and then maybe something that is more monocyte or more tissue resident actually stays in the tumor, um, just because that's what it's programmed to do. Um, I'm not sure. And I know that there's many cases where you find CCR7 positive CDC1s in human and mouse models. So it's definitely still an important mechanism to look at. It's just happened that in these tumors, we don't find them. So we looked at the monocyte derived cells and the CDC2s. And, and I think it's very, very interesting that they're also a functional APC that can um, stimulate the CD8 T cells because it's overlooked, I think, a lot of the plants. Okay, that, that's really great uh, point and really interesting data. Um, finally, uh, to functionally prove that co-stimulation by dendritic cells and not other signals was necessary to acquire cytotoxic function in tumors, the authors isolated CD8 stem cells from human kidney tumors and stimulated in vitro with CD3 alone, CD3 and CD28, or CD3, CD28, and IL2. The authors demonstrated that CD8, CD28 was necessary for proliferation and the acquisition of effector phenotype, as CD3 alone does not induce activation. It's important to point out that the activation was enhanced by the presence of IL2 signaling. And Natalia, I'm guessing that you, during while performing this experiment, you use optimal concentration of CD8, CD3, and CD28. What would happen if you stimulate the cells with high dose of CD28 alone? And normally in an IE cell, if we put CD28, this, I mean, this wouldn't activate the cell because we require TCR. But now we're talking about a, a CD8 T cell that have previously 
encounter the antigen. And so they're not naive. What would happen if you only put T28 signaling there? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so these experiments are quite difficult. And I want to point out that we used quite a low concentration of IL-2. Okay. So if you put this concentration of IL-2 on the cells unstimulated, they will not divide. So we mm -hmm. did titrate the IL-2 down so that they can survive, but it's not proliferating only because of IL-2. Um, mm -hmm. So that is a good note to have and good for you to bring up. Um, so we did do a few CD28 alone uh, stimulations and it didn't seem to induce any proliferation, but right. we would have to do, you know, I would have to do some more repeats to be mm -hmm. really certain. And we did titrate down some of the beads, but we actually titrated the amount of CD3 uh, more than CD28 and CD2, mm -hmm. just because there's studies that show that very high amounts of TCR alone can cause naive CD T cells to proliferate. So mm -hmm. we, um, when we got new beads, we tested them on a naive CD T cell to show that it's not the concentration that is going to induce proliferation on a naive cell. Mm -hmm. And then the CD28, we didn't titrate. We used the concentration that was, I think, just of the of this kit that we got um but it is there's many you know facets to these ex vivo cultures for sure and it's quite difficult to get many um re conditions from one patient just because of the cell number limitations so oftentimes it would we would have liked to add additional controls but honestly, if you're getting three conditions from one patient, that's an amazing day. <laughs> so just to get enough repeats and all the different conditions to compare, and you always have to have the positive control of you know 3282. <laughs> so by the time you're doing all, I spent months sorting and stimulating these cells to get the dots that you're seeing. So <laughs> I think to add more conditions would have been another like six months of my life. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very limiting assay because if you're plating less than, a, I think we did, we, you need at least 2000 for it to look believable because yeah, the, A, they're in a tumor. So they're already in this not a good environment. Then we're staining them, putting them through a sorter. So you're losing a lot of cells just by staining and sorting. And then you know, the number that you get back, you spin down and really carefully plate them and you hope that they, they survive the next five days to, for you to, to flow them. So it's it's just a limiting assay. So I would, we did a few of these CD28 alone. It didn't do much. So we just kind of dropped it because it made, it, it makes it really slow to, to do it. And then in the next section that you'll talk about, we also repeated this with IL-12 and type 1 interferons. So mm -hmm. it's many, many, many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I was talking the other day with a, a friend of the lab and it was like, it's, I think immunology experiments are really, really hard because of all the things we, we need to do, like, I mean, working with mice and also with human samples. I mean, it's more different than working, I don't know, with bacteria or only cell lines. So yeah, I think it's really hard. And when we see these figures with these dots, you know, we judged them and we said, like, oh, they should ask, add more stuff there. But, you know, we don't imagine all the hard work you 
it's behind that dot. So yeah, it's... once again, congratulations. <laughs> no, but it's honestly, it's so, um, it's such a great opportunity to have mm -hmm. the amount of human samples that we were getting to be able to do it. So it is a lot of late nights sorting because what would happen is the surgeons, we had surgeons we collaborated with, they'd be like, we have two surgeons on Tuesdays was our surgery day. This you're going to get samples sometime in the afternoon. And then we had an amazing lab techs that would process the samples for us to get the lymphos like, like the immune cells out of the tumor just to process this human tumor. And then they hand it off to us. So some days you're starting this experiment at like four or 5 PM, but it's amazing how many samples we got where almost every single week we could do an experiment on a fresh human sample because I wouldn't be able to do the dendritic cell co-cultures without fresh samples. We wouldn't be able to show all of this differentiation ex vivo without these samples. So it is a lot, a lot of work, but it's also extremely rare to have that opportunity. So, you know, it's a give and take. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic opportunity. No, I can. So, I, I, I'm I'm just impressed by the amount of human data into this, and yeah. I guess collaborating with or being next to the hospital that has its perks. Yeah, definitely, definitely has its perks, and we're very lucky that the people that we collaborate with are extremely interested in the mm. science and open to giving us samples. And now um, there's so many clinical trials that we get samples from too. So we're, we work very, very closely with the, the hospital and all the clinicians. Finally, and to summarize uh, this part, the authors show that stem cell lactate T cells require TCR and co-stimulation for the differentiation of effector cells. So I think now we could move to the discussion we have during the, these episodes, we have discussed uh, some, uh, some points during uh, the results, but um, Natalia, your results bring to light a whole new view of how CDAT cells activate and differentiate in comparison to what happens in viral infection. What would be the relevance of this process happening this way? Could the same process occur in other sterile inflammation conditions such as transplantation? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Uh, I. The relevance for a while we thought was to keep your lymph nodes from maybe having too many cytotoxic CD8 T cells, mm -hmm. but then that doesn't make complete sense because obviously in viral infections, you do get effectors everywhere. So it could just be honestly a bad immune response to tumors and that there isn't enough uh, inflammation and positive signals to really differentiate these cells fully. Um, and we haven't looked much into transplant or other, yeah, more sterile inflammation conditions or even localized viral infections where the virus isn't in the lymph node. But my guess would be that you would be getting more of this phenotype. I think um, depending on the signals that you're getting from APCs and the type of immune response and inflammation that you're seeing, you might still get some effector differentiation in the lymph node, but you might be also keeping a population of these stem-like cells. And I know even in different tumor models, such as uh, MC38, you do get a little bit of the differentiation 
in the lymph node. So it could just be the kind of balance of signals and that maybe you're getting more stem-like CDT cells in your lymph node if you have like a very low inflammation. And then as you get further and closer to the inflammatory level of an acute virus, you're getting more of these effectors and Kim 3 granzyme B positive cells. But I think that's a whole field and decades of research. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really interesting uh, uh, process. And I was really surprised when I, I was first reading this paper. So I think with this, I think we could move to the summary and the end of this. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so before I start with the summary, Eugenia, do you remember our first ever body sword with Dr. Yuri Yu, where we were talking about uh, exhausted T cells and how they had yeah. the exhausted T cells had mitophagy yeah, defects, uh -huh. and you could reverse exhaustion? I don't know why this paper reminded me of that, even though we have not talked about exhaustion that much. <laughs> but yeah, for our audience, that's a good listen. Like body sword number one, if you want to uh, look at some metabolic side of T cell exhaustion and what happens to their mitochondria. And for our discussion for today, and I mean, it's a summary for today's episode, I, I love, this is a very sh concise summary because the, uh, this paper tells us about the passage and the fate of these cells from the lymph nodes to the tumor. So let's go into it. What we have learned today is that in the phase, there are, we can divide the process of activation of CD8 T cells against tumors into two main phases. In the first phase, Naive CDA T cells are primed and they proliferate in the training lymph node, but they do not acquire effector functions. These cells acquire a stem cell-like phenotype. In the second phase, the stem cell-like CDA T cells migrate to the tumor, and after antigen presentation and co-stimulation, they acquire a fully effector and a function and cytotoxic program. And that would be a great point to wrap up our episode today. Thanks a lot, uh, Natalia, for joining us for this wonderful uh, uh, discussion. I've learned a lot, and I also want to commend you for this incredible amount of work that must have gone in this paper. Thank you and so much for having me, and thank you, thank you for asking amazing questions and, and letting me kind of talk about my ideas on... CD8 T cells and exhaustion and APC and all sorts of fun things. Yeah, and I apologize because f I have always had this dream of naming some cell population with my name, but I just mm -hmm. did not have the chance to egg to <laughs> find a new cell population. So I, I was just trying to implement my will on you, and I'm really sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I cannot... I can't put my name on any of the CD8 T cells there. <laughs> I think everyone in the field is is circulating around the same cells, so that would be pretty selfish of me to just <laughs> announce that these ones are the Natalia cells. They on the positive side, it only like the whole controversy lasts for a few years. After ten years, people will not remember, and your name gets immortalized, and that's all that matters. But I digress. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks a lot, Eugenio, for the wonderful discussion, and for our audience. If you're interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find out about our blogs and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions you can email us at antibodies1 at the rate gmail.com. 
with that i'm your host jatin sharma signing off until we meet again bye 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 bye